Hey guys, welcome back to Men's Jitsu Podcast. I'm of course your host, Humanzi. So today I'm joined by Ryan Smith from Atlantic BJJ Sligo. Guys, I had a really great opportunity to train with Ryan one time about a year and a half ago. Back when uh, jiu-jitsu camps were legal, we all had a good time in the hinge getting really drunk and doing a lot of training. He showed some really good omoplata shit, some really good stuff there. So we talk a lot about how he trains beginners, how he gets them used to sort of escapes, escaping positions, and he sort of heightens on the self-defense aspect of the of the training, like curl, curling up, protecting your head, and then seeking an opportunity to escape, as well as how we get we get going to the minutiae of how you teach each class and what his sort of standards are for per especially for blue belt what his standards are what he expects from people in each class and you know his lessons plan and he's very heavy on curriculum based learning so guys hope you enjoyed the episode and uh thanks for listening okay so guys welcome back to man's jitsu podcast today's episode 75 and i'm joined with the head coach of the only alliance affiliate gym in ireland ryan smith what's up ryan How's things, Andrew? Thanks for having me on. Good man, like guys. Look I've forward the, to the chat. I've actually had the great fortune of training with him one time at the uh, what's it? Um, it was the Irish Jiu Jitsu Le Hinch fucking. I can't remember what the thing was. I think it was the Wild Atlantic Jiu Jitsu Camp or something or other. The name's escaping me, but it was just three day three days of Jiu Jitsu surfing and getting fucked up drunk. Not in particularly in that order, and not everyone was down with the fucked up drunk part, but uh, yeah, some wiggle room. And, you know, he's a great teacher, and I fought one of his guys one time. I got my ass kicked. That's not, we don't talk about that. <laughs> so, Ryan, what's up? How's it going? I'm good, Andrew. Thanks a lot for having me on now. And uh, all is good, you know. Obviously, we're out of action at the moment, but uh, just trying to stay positive as possible under the circumstances. Oh, man, that's sure. We all know what the doll is up to. They're, they have a secret gym in the basement there, and they're allowed to train. So what the hell? <laughs> like I, I bet you anyone who does train there, they're doing that because you know they kept their pub open when everyone else's was closed. So what the yeah, hell? I heard John Danaher is up there giving private lessons. <laughs> He's like, okay, so Leo, you want to fucking live with the full crumbs of the axes and use <laughs> leverage and knee wedges and shit? Like, I know about you, but like, I don't know if you're a fan of John Danaher's uh, teaching style personally, but I'm not. I don't like work. I don't like wordy shit. That sounds counterproductive. I don't like wordy shit, in my opinion. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He shows a lot of good points. But I think if you watch his videos, put them on 2x speed and you'll get through it a bit faster. There's a lot of time, a lot of wasted time. Uh, So watch it in fast forward mode. (laughs) Like, I know he's really smart and he's really good. That's blatantly obvious because of the fucking people he's produced. Like, you'd have to be a liar to sort of say otherwise. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's no doubt. You know, some people just, I know some people appreciate his teaching style, you know, different people uh, perform better under certain, under certain people with certain teaching styles, but that's just not for me. So, sorry. So, first thing I always want to know with each of my guests is how you started training. Did you train anything else before starting jiu-jitsu? And that sort of arrangement. So, I I started in about 2004, and I started doing a self-defense course with a local karate club. And the two instructors were there at the time were Mickey Downs and Francie Mahan. And they were karate black belts, but they'd got a kind of watched a bit of the UFC. 
and had got a, an interest in jiu-jitsu and they were thinking there was something a little bit different out there than karate that they'd been training for a long time. So they started to research a lot into uh, jiu-jitsu and in Donegal at the time, uh, Josie Murray was running a traditional jiu-jitsu club, but he had started kind of diverging a wee bit into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and he went out to Brazil, trained with the Gracies a bit. And Mickey and Francie used to go to Donegal and learn jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu from that from him. And they started to bring it back to Sligo then. And that's where I came in, kind of learning off them on the course that they ran in, in about 2004. So there had been some form of jiu-jitsu in Sligo from about, I don't know, 99 or 2000, uh, year 2000 on. And, uh, you know, I credit a lot to Mickey and Francie for pioneering uh, changing from what they had been doing with karate and branching out it was kind of a lot of very similar to MMA what was going on at, in them days more than what you'd see today with jiu-jitsu but uh, that's how I got I got into it started learning a bit of the grappling I'm a smaller guy so I'm 5'7", 65kgs and I could see straight away that the grappling was more effective for me uh, when I was sparring with bigger guys in the gym and Straight away, I just thought, yeah, this this is for me, and I never really turned back ever since. I just kept training more and more as the years went by, and kind of turned into a bit of an obsession. And and later uh, went on to to open up the the gym, Atlantic Jiu Jitsu. So, oh, damn, man. See, since you have like a background in like karate and the traditional Jiu Jitsu, I bet you people are afraid to grab your collar because you're Steven Seagal era wrist lock sort of stand from standing. <laughs> No, shit, a brick trying to grab your collar. Well, you know, actually, when we trained karate in those days, the 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 guys we were training with Mickey and Francie, our coaches, they were a bit more like um, open minded. That it wasn't pure traditional. They were, uh, it was a very kind of more kickboxing style, you could say, or just an open style. And uh, so we learned a lot of good striking uh, with the hands and the feet at the time but no wrist locks or I didn't do actually traditional jiu-jitsu the Japanese jiu-jitsu I never did it uh, it was just that the the guy that taught our coach he had done it but he done jiu-jitsu Brazilian jiu-jitsu it's very confusing isn't it but uh, <laughs> then there's American jiu-jitsu let's not even get into that well, that's yeah that's a new new thing on the horizon right Irish jiu-jitsu will be next what where we uh, just have a paddy cap on and a fucking tweed 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 sweater and get hammered before every roll? <laughs> no, it's just headbutts, headbutts only. <laughs> I thought, I, well, like that's a bit of a what's it uh, a bit of fuckery there because isn't that the Glasgow kiss? So why why are we doing that in our jiu jitsu? That's like proper snakey of us to steal that yeah. challenge. <laughs> I would call it the Sligo handshake. Oh, uh, dude, we we have, like what's the Sligo handshake up up there? But we have the Limerick handshake where, you know, like it's always a joke. Oh, you shake their hand with one hand and you stab them in the gut with the other one. Like that's the, <laughs> that's the joke here. What's your joke with the Sligo handshake? I'll have to come up and find out. <laughs> we'll have to get you up there someday. Well, you're going to grab my hand then drop down for St. Aggie, just fling me onto my head. Possibly, possibly. It could be random. <laughs> Sligo is a very random place. <laughs> I've only been there a few times, but like I, I can't even remember because I was such a fucking, I was really young. It's a, I just remember it being a very weird and strange place with some weird people, 
No, no offense. You're all a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> like, that's, that's a contrary picture. How can you take that? Like, oh, no offense, but you and everyone in the sort of place you are. are yeah, all all the you... tournaments you go to from now on, every Sligo fellow will be just kind of eyeballing you. <laughs> and if I ever fight your, any of your guys again, they're going to they're gonna be fucking wanting to kill me. Like, oh, what? What? He tapped? Oh, no. Uh, how unfortunate. <laughs> I, didn't I didn't notice. This. I didn't notice. Our ref looked the other way. So that <clears throat> started to get back on track. Was there anything in particular that you struggled with in your early days training? Was there a certain move, technique, concept that just wasn't sinking in for you? Um, I suppose in the early days, there was a lot of issues, you know, like because when I started off, our coaches were blue belts and um, the, the level's not the same as today. So the good thing was, Learning from uh, blue belt instructors was that the basic jiu-jitsu was fairly solid because that's all that was available at the time. And that in those days there was no YouTube, like there was no, there wasn't really books. And if there was books out, it was like some kind of a ancient text trying to decipher a, a scissor sweep or an armbar from pictures. Like it's really difficult. And obviously, no the the broadband level. If there was a video, I'll take you like an hour to watch a, a clip of something you know in very highly pixelated <laughs> way and so the, the information wasn't really there as much you know so we, we focused mainly in those days on the basics of getting those fairly strong like your escapes and defenses and stuff like that but um we just knew that we had a lot more to learn and later went on to try and progress joining with uh, more expert instructors and bringing people in for seminars and that kind of thing. So we could kind of see that there was just a large hole in information uh, and knowledge really than anything specific because it was such an early time in the development of the sport. In 2004, there wasn't even a black belt in Ireland. Maybe, I don't know, it was John Cavanaugh purple belt at that time or, or so. And maybe Josie Murray was a purple belt at that time. So the, the level in Ireland was kind of still very very early early days and I think the emphasis as well was more on MMA than jiu-jitsu itself as a martial art so I get you it was, uh, it was dark dark times I call it I affectionately call it the Irish jiu-jitsu famine <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, I, I call that period of history so like uh one thing I'm curious about like how did you you guys first become like affiliated with uh, Alliance like did you did you, were you, did you make like uh, like educate decision like you you researched a whole bunch of affiliations and you're like yeah that one that's the one you want to go to or did it just sort of happen naturally over time like what's the sort of backstory with that uh pretty much uh, as you said like we just checked out see who was the the main teams around and who what they were offering and alliance seemed like the the right choice so you know at that time they were very big in the competition scene they would have had nearly all the black belt titles i think uh, one point, I, I think in that year we joined was to the end of, uh, or the start of 2011, so 10 years now. And at that time, they, you know, they had Bruno Malfasini, Michael Lange, Cobrina, Marcelo Garcia, uh, Tarsus Humphreys, Bernardo, you know, all the, these guys were all the top of the food chain, Lucas Lepri as well. So we're like, okay, we can learn something from these guys, you know. So uh, I got in touch with uh, Jacare and we made a connection then 
and we started to get the ball rolling. And the first first thing we did was we brought Bruno Malfasini to Sligo. And then from there, you know, he he did a he stayed for ten days in Sligo, and at that time he was three times world champion. And uh, I don't think many people really knew who he was, you know. <laughs> but now he's like ten times world champion and one of the the all time most highly decorated competitors there was. But he spent ten days in February in Sligo, which is is a hard time for a man from Rio. <laughs> Yeah, if you remember that year it was the coldest winter on record oh. uh, it was the, like really bad frost and snow all through that year and he was frozen to the bone but he uh he gave a great seminar and one of the things that he he did uh throughout well it was a camp of 10 days was fundamentals like you know he he showed so many basic techniques like that everyone should know even though he's like this world-class competitor and, you know, highly skilled in barambolos and all sorts of things that he could have shown just to kind of impress people. But um, he showed a lot of very simple uh, techniques and concepts and it brought, immediately brought us up to another level on that, just after that training camp. And then we went out to Atlanta, myself from Morgan. Club got together and sponsored us to go to Atlanta uh, for two weeks out there training with uh, Romero Jacare and Lucas Lepre. And we did instructor training and uh, we did the Pan Am camp with the competition team out there, which was unbelievable. There was world champions from blue up to black belt there at every belt level and female, male uh, world champions. So got amazing training, amazing knowledge to bring back to Sligo then. And from that point on, you know, we just have grown every year. So it was a great decision in the end. God damn, man. I'm, fuck, I'm really jealous of the fucking Pan Am training camp. Because, man, like, uh, before the Rona happened, like, I was going to go to America for a bit. I was going to train a few people. And, like, uh, people suggested, because I was going to go to Kentucky and Philadelphia. Some people suggested I go to Colorado, because I think Lucas Lepre trains there now. You know, I train with him because he's a... Uh, to use their words, uh, a fucking beast. Yeah. Uh, would you say that's an accurate assessment? Well, having training, I've trained with him. Uh, he, we had him in Sligo for a training camp for seven days straight. And I think it took me two months to recover from it. That, that's how savage the training was. But it was, it was unbelievable. And I can hands down say, like, some people see see Lucas Lepre in the World Championships and they don't appreciate what he actually does. You know, he, he's so dominant. But after after rolling with him several rounds and many days, like uh, I can attest that he is just unbelievably good. Like you can't do anything to him. Uh, he he's his main skill is not so much the guard passes he uses or his guard. It's how he's able to shut you down. So he just strips you away from doing what you want to do and then he proceeds with his game. And it's just a fantastic thing to to see. Like it's so hard to even get your best position for a second on him. And he, he's already moving ahead. Is that that good? Jesus, man. I'm fucking now I'm really now I'm really hurting that I didn't get to train with him. Thanks thanks for helping it in. Yeah. <laughs> well, put it on the list for sure. Once things open up, like that's one, that's one uh, play. He's in uh, Charlotte in North Carolina, and uh, it's well worth it to to go and train with him for a bit because you'll see just a a very very tight game. You know, 
nothing too flash or nothing too um, exceptional in the sexy moves or anything, but he will shut you down and stop you doing your stuff like so bad. And it frustrates you so badly like that he's he's going to inch by inch get up and, and pass your guard. And just once he gets there, his knee on belly pressure, knee on chest, I should say. I think the track of his knee is still on my chest. <laughs> but it, it's so there's cool. like a there's like a groove in your chest that his knee will still fit into all these years later. Yeah, yeah. And you, you see some of the matches, like if you watch some of his matches back from the Worlds, when he puts that pressure on people when he does pass their guard, it, either they they get submitted from the side control or they turn away and give their back because the pressure is so much they need to just uh, expose their back. So most times he gets the back, but because he, he forces the the person to roll away generally. So and I think that's a testament to how good a grappler he is. He has such a good uh-huh. belly that people prefer having her back taken than being in the belly. It's like, yeah, you know what? I know back is a shit position, but I'll take it because your knee and belly is killing me. And I'm actually going to die soon. <laughs> it's pretty much that's the, the choice. <laughs> or all the ribs get broken. Yeah, and nobody wants to tap out to pressure, you know? <laughs> oh, no, man. Uh, I, I actually made a, a what's it? I, I did an episode one time about jerk jitsu, like people being doing jerk moves and shit, being assholes and training. And that was one of them. This one dude for a seven minute round was just uh, digging knee and belly into me for the whole time. This purple belted fellow from like uh, you know he's random guy. He's always just digging it in. He was trying to submit me with that. I'd even put my arm up, begging him to armbar me. Like a white belt, day one white belt could cut this armbar. It was just dangling there, begging him. <laughs> and then when I oh, oh get this. Just a quick aside, his foot was always taped up. He was like a walking injury. You know, he'd been through the ringer. He'd been training for ages. So, like, um, his feet and hands were always taped up because he was fucked up, like a walking injury, like I said. I managed to escape the near belly, put him into an ankle lock on his taped up foot. Oh, and uh, let's just say he he wasn't too happy after that. You know, a few uh, rips of the ankle lock and a few <laughs> few close calls. <laughs> and a, limp, a limping away afterwards that, uh, that taught him. I'm proud of that. Even though I didn't tap him, but uh, did some damage. Man, yeah, yeah. One, one he thing got deserved, I guess. <laughs> you know, jerk jitsu. Yeah. It that's can't like escalate. That. That's the trouble, you know. Oh, you know. Shit happens. So, like, uh, one thing I was curious about, what's your all-time favorite submission, whether it be just catching training, competition, your favorite submission to catching anyone in just hands down? Um. Well, usually it's a choke from the back, you know, like, possibly bone arrow choke or like an over under collar choke because uh, most times I'm looking to get to the back so I would probably choose the I think it's the most high percentage as well like so nine times out of ten like if if, if I get a submission it's probably from the back so I favor those ones and a bone arrow it's just so such a solid submission it's very once it's on it's it's hard to get back you know but I'm getting fond of the, the footlock these days as well. So I like the, uh, I learned a lot on uh, the footlock recent, well, in the last few years, you know. So um, I used to have the kind of Dean Lister approach to it. And now it's more the, the Mikey Musmecki, Isaac Donerline version. Oh, so. his, um, his instructional about footlocks there from a, from a while back is fucking shamazing. Where it's like, because man, he has the most footlock wins in IBGF world's history. Like he's fucking, he's a killer with those. He's yeah, serious. like th- this version that the way he does it, 
it's amazingly good, very effective. Because I I'd been doing footlocks for a long time, like, uh, but I had used the kind of method of say Dean Lister, um, which would be a bit more on the Achilles kind of lock and kind of breaking your shin as much like that. So like you recognize Dean Lister being a, a very strong guy, like a, a brick of a man, you know, a block where Mikey Musmecki or some of these guys are very small guys, you know, and I thought, well, let's investigate this. And I trained with um, Isaac Doderline before in, because uh, if you watch his matches, he does the same footlock. And I believe that he learned with, with Musmecki, but uh, it could be open to correction on that. But uh, I was training with him and he was catching me with this footlock over and over again. And it was just very tight, very effective. And uh, very different than, say, the the or the traditional application of the footlock. And then, having done seminars with Cobrinha on the footlock and Jonathan Thomas also on the similar style, uh, they just added a little bit more to it as well. So, like, uh, having a lot of success with that now, and I think it's you're going to probably see that a lot more now that the footlock is back in action. And people are going to start getting it a lot, lot more because like, uh, the the effectiveness level has gone up, I don't know, 10 times or something like that, where it was always a good submission. Um, the only problem was it was harder to get from the bottom. You'd often see in tournaments, maybe at the lower belts, like a guy would be passing guard, a drop on the footlock, and he'd just go on it hard and tap the guy. Or the, the opposite would happen where he, he'd go on it, but the guy would jump up on top and end up scoring two points as a sweep. So he went for he dropped for the footlock, but he lost two points because he didn't finish it. And then possibly would lose the match 2-0 because of that. So there's that's a strategic thing in jiu-jitsu that a lot of people miss, dropping for a footlock or a guillotine. But now with the entries from the one-leg X and the, a kind of modified version of the one-leg X, uh, the, the this version of the footlock from the bottom is is so so tight so effective, and everyone should watch Musmecki and Isaac Doderline and there's tons of their matches on YouTube of them having success with this, so there's a recommendation for people to check out. Yeah, uh, guys, like you, I've always said this on the podcast. I say this all the time, but like uh, every submission win I have, like uh, all nine or ten of them nine or ten of them is by uh, ankle lock and that's not because i'm good at ankle locks because i suck at everything else I want yeah to... <laughs> oh you didn't even try you say <laughs> like oh my god You're like yeah i know you suck at everything else because everyone does but man one thing curious about each of my guests i always say that i have to vary it up is what's the first thing this is more specific for coaches what's the first thing you teach like a beginner's class like say it's day one you got a new sort of group of people what's like the first thing you teach them Oh, well, our day one, we ha we have a curriculum, so we have uh, we have very basic stuff. Like so, you'd have a break, fall, and technical stand up because we want to make sure the guys can fall properly and not hurt themselves. So, so in our first lesson, we're, we talk about about safety and how you won't get injured or don't get hurt because you're going to have different levels of people. Some are very fit, some unfit, never trained before, and then we kind of move into. Uh, applying a technical stand-up from the guard, you know, so self-defense would be the, the main context as well of the first lesson. So everything is revolving around self-defense because if 
if you come in and you're you're just teaching a guy like hip escape or something like that and he's like what's this for you know he, you know it but he's just curious like uh right i don't really see where this fits so we'll try and get straight into more of the meat of jiu-jitsu positions and techniques on the on the first lesson um, but just making sure that uh, they understand the safety so we might have a a way to block a punch clinch up take the person down mount and armbar that's our first lesson so we go through those and just give everyone a taste of it walk them through the position and then let them drill it a bit at the end so that's pretty much your your first lesson and from there you, you go into your our curriculum and we have about 25 lessons all together on the beginners program or we call the fundamentals and then the student would just progress on each lesson add a few more techniques review previous ones uh, so there's a bit of retrieval practice from uh, previous lessons as well so you're you're not just losing what you learned a week ago forget about it now you've something new because then the old that stuff you learned a week ago is gone so um, that's why we have the curriculum like that and with our beginners course or program you need to get to the second stripe of your white belt so 60 classes before you can go to the intermediate level so that that gives our, a foundation then to progress see like what would you say is like the biggest pro of like uh curriculum based sort of teaching there because i know lots not everyone is into that sort of thing everyone's just like everyone has like a basic sort of thing that people should know like oh yeah we want to cover this this and that but it's not like an ironed down sort of curriculum thing that they've toiled over not just a little side question like how yeah. did you decide what should be in the curriculum what shouldn't be like what should be for later how did you sort of decide what stays in what should shouldn't be there yeah, so like I get the, like the curriculum on the fundamentals, self defense is the the priority. So that everyone really that comes to train with us wants to learn self defense. So we we make sure to incorporate everything we're learning in that context. So that if we're doing a mount escape or a side control escape or an armbar, that the element of someone punching you in the face or hitting you is there. You know, so I know when we tra train more sport jujitsu, we're doing Delaheva guards and spider guards and stuff that's not there so we're making sure that that is uh always in, in the front of our mind but then like our curriculum comes from the alliance jiu-jitsu uh curriculum from the affiliation and it's been developed by the, those over the last 30 years or so and they kind of developed their uh curriculum from the gracie jiu-jitsu program that would have ran in the old days in brazil because Jacare and Fabio Gurgel would have came from that era of uh, teaching. But uh, <clears throat> they've refined a bit more, I think. And even we, we've just made subtle changes as well for our own uses. But it's just the, the curriculum, you're going to cover the main positions and the main techniques. So, for example, if someone attacks you from the front with a strike, punch, haymaker punch or a straight punch, uh, you're going to have some way to defend. If someone comes from behind, grabs you around the, the waist, grabs you over the arms or grabs you around the neck, you're going to have a defense. So you're building a, a, a repertoire of techniques from the back. If someone comes by surprise or from the front, if someone's throwing a strike or tries to grab, say grabs you around the, the waist with a double underhook or grabs your front headlock. Uh, it's kind of basic self-defense positions that you might encounter. 
and then on the ground from all the defensive positions, side control mount, neon belly and the back mount, we have at least two escapes from each one. So that would be on your curriculum. And then from uh, the guard, from closed guard, you would have maybe five submissions, maybe three sweeps in different scenarios, uh, a way to take the back. Then from the dominant positions like side control, uh, neon belly, mount, back mount, you're going to have at least two submissions from each of those as well. So you have your escapes, your submissions, your sweeps, your guard position and your standing position. And there you kind of have a, a foundation then of knowledge that when you do go to spar, that you'll at least understand what you should do, even though you might not yet be able to do most of it, but uh, you'll kind of know, right, I'm in mount. The guy can armbar me here. He may be able to punch me in the face. And what I should do is I need to either bridge him over or recover my guard. So you're not panicking, trying to flail around, trying to hug his leg or grab around his waist or just doing the wrong thing. So the guy has a, a format of where he should go. And that way, when they move on to the intermediate program where there's more sparring involved, they've drilled enough. There's no sparring really or very minimal in our fundamentals program. Uh, we might put you in closed guard or something like that and say, right, just try to get out of closed guard, but there's no submission and there's no sweep or there's not there's no attack. Just hold the guy in closed guard and he tries to get out. And just to get the guys comfortable with the pressure and there's less uh, techniques and information involved so the student can develop a uh, sense of the position faster. And the same with side control. Let's hold side control. The guy's just going to keep you pinned down. And he's not going to change the way he pins or anything. He's just going to keep you stuck there. You just have to try and escape. He's not going to try and submit or move to mount. And that way, the, the, the beginner who knows much, much less is going to have an easier time to kind of get understanding. And gradually, you can add in complexity to the position. You can say, you know, now we can change base inside control or we can uh, move to north-south or, you know, we can, we can slide into mount. Your way to win is, is slide into mount. If you get mount on him, you win. If he gets out, he wins. But there's still no submissions. And that way the guys are just getting a better understanding of what's expected. And then when you add in the submissions later, then they can start to work on that too. So that's how our curriculum is kind of devised, that it's uh, just covering all the bases of positions, transitions. And through the classes, then we try to get across the principles of jiu-jitsu in each lesson so if there's uh we, we'd say that like the main principle in jiu-jitsu is to have the the maximum efficiency with the minimum effort so you're trying to get that in, into people's head that they don't have to go crazy trying to pull a guy over and, and just bridge him off or using massive amounts of strength to get out of a position where the, the point of jiu-jitsu is to use your head rather than your your muscles and just power to get out of things. Uh, I can cut this part out, don't worry about it, but man, so I'll just cut it here. Uh, man, that's a really good way to look at it so everyone has all their bases covered. Like, it's a really good point to what you brought up about the min maximum sort of reward for the minimum effort. So like, uh, you know, people aren't just <laughs> bridging like a madman, like it's a game of fucking buckaroo or something. So people are just going crazy, you know, <laughs> yeah, themselves, yeah. being stuck in bottom mount for the trouble. 
Yeah, so like even when our, our beginners start practicing, I'm very, uh, like I'd say to them, you know, right, we're going to start in side control. And sometimes the guys are mit- mismatched, you know, some guy is a big strong guy, the other guy's not so strong, or maybe he hasn't learned the, the escapes very well, and he's on bottom, and the big guy is on top of him. And we, we, we set the clock for a minute. So if he doesn't get out, what is the guy on bottom going to learn? If he doesn't escape, all he learns is like, I can't do it. So we make sure that the guy can escape. This is very important from a coaching point of view. And it's not like giving him a a free pass or anything like that to make him feel good. It's like I try to make the analogy of you go to the gym and you're trying to start deadlift. You're not going to start with the heaviest weight in the gym. You're going to gradually increase the intensity over time until you can do the, the maximum weight eventually. So I'd say to the guy on top, like, you know, that your partner has to escape at least once or else you're holding with too much pressure and he hasn't learned the, the escape correctly because we know the escapes work. So we just give him a chance to start to uh, develop the escape and, and see the open without like too much pressure or too much weight. So he's got at least going to escape once. And then I can say, right, uh, gradually increase the intensity a bit. So if he escapes once, now he can hold a bit tighter. Uh, if he escapes twice, a little bit tighter again. And the third time you can hold as tight as you can. If he still gets out, great, he's got it. You know, so there's a bit of a, a level of, of learning there as well, where you're not saying, right, you've one minute to get out. If you don't get out, then you failed, you know. And then the guy thinks, I don't know it. Uh, I won't see this position now for a while. I have no idea what's going on. So he, he feels kind of like he's just not getting it. Now that makes sense, like having that all covered, because, you know, if you show, you show it to them, you make sure they get it, have the technical pro- proficiency, and if they're able to escape, even with, you know, them not putting on 100% pressure, you know, they'll have to sort of be, more, be, be a bit more confident that they, that they have the ability to do it. You know, as well as knowing it's, you know, having knowing something, be able to do it is diff- two different things. But you know, you're sort of helping them a little in both areas there. And even then, a bit of a sidetrack. It's just training. So like, if you were going 100%, squeezing the fuck out of someone's head, you know, making them uh, hurt, you know, just fucking them up. Well, what's that accomplishing? You know, really. Yeah. Well, see, this is what a lot of guys come in that that don't understand that point yet. That it's training, not it's not a real fight. So some of them think they're actually in a fight because of one reason or another. And it happens to a lot of people because they're just not, they've never been in these scenarios before. They're not comfortable with it. And they don't know the level of pressure that you need or what's too little or what's too light. So that takes a bit of time to for people to adapt. So some guy will come in and he will just like latch onto you like with a death grip. And the other guy is kind of like, oh, I'm just trying to learn here, you know, and he's getting nowhere. So... It builds good training partners down the line as well, because people, if you do it from day one, then because sometimes you'll still have guys that are, say, at a higher level that are still kind of doing that. They just were tough guys and they learned enough and they got through the, the ranks and they're still just only able to put one speed. I'm sure you've probably trained with some guys that only have one gear and it's all or nothing, <laughs> as opposed to the guys can kind of switch it up into different levels of intensity and they're they're well able to train with white belts or black belts or whatever level you know now that's good man it sort of reminds you of something like i know this guy who runs a muay thai gym 
and the way he teaches people, like obviously, you know, you hit pads and shit occasionally, but he teaches you how to hold pads first, because if you can't hold pads with someone else, you know, because he teaches he teach, teach you to be a good teammate as well, because no not hold pads, because you got to, you know, whack them into them. You got to know on the fly, oh, one, two, hook, hook, and uppercuts and shit. You got to know how to hold them properly, because that's his, his major thing before you hit them. You know, so you're better, you're better teammate to someone else before you start learning. Like that's his sort of uh, mentality. Yeah, that's really important. You know, and it's it's really important at any time when you're running a club uh, that there's this kind of mutual respect and a mutual benefit between the students as well as between the student and the coach. Because a lot of time the, the student will respect the coach because they're learning from him and he's more of an authority figure. But sometimes the, the student to student respect is not the same, you know, especially like a higher rank and a lower ranked belt. So it's important to build that kind of mentality into your club that all people are, regardless of the rank, they're still equal and there's still something to be learned from each person. And the, the, the higher rank guy training with a white belt that's new, you know, can he can learn a lot by helping him in the training and through the techniques, guiding him through it. Um, that will open a lot of doors and things that he's not even sure that he didn't know, like until he had to try and teach someone or to help someone with it. So there's a lot of benefit in, in the over and back. You know, some people are more, you know, they just want to train with their favorite training partner every time and go through the most, their techniques and get those nailed down. And they don't want to waste time with these new guys uh, bringing them on. But that will pay massive benefit overall in the long run in the short term uh, it might seem like a bit of inconvenience but it builds a great camaraderie in the club and when that white belt becomes a blue belt and a purple belt he will remember that time and he'll be very thankful of the attention and the appreciation that, or the, the time that the, the other guys gave him bringing him up and he'll offer that back then to the next generation of people coming through and it's really key to, to keeping people coming through all the time because people do come and go regularly from jiu-jitsu. So if it's not a mutually beneficial environment, you're going to lose people as well. Plus, not to mention, if you get a new guy and one of the senior students helps him out a lot, you're able to get him up to a level where he's better sooner. So you'll have a better person to train with quicker. And thus, he's not like he's more like worth your time, air quotes, to train with because he'll be better because of the attention you put into him. So you, you just produce the better teammates. So awesome. Yeah, that's it. What goes around comes around. Awesome. Yeah, like, man, I, I love doing that. So I'm like some of my favorite people to train with are as a result of me going up to the new people and just helping them out. You know, some of my favorite people to train with are, because, are results of that. Yeah. You know? So like, in your opinion, what would you sort of emphasize, like say in like an intermediate and advanced context to get onto that? Would you emphasize like just let's start with your coaching style? Would you emphasize drilling, rolling, or positional sparring? Like what's what would you say is your favorite thing to sort of focus on in, in an intermediate and advanced context? Um, yeah, so in the intermediate level, now we would go to more positional sparring. So we're in the fundamental program, we'd learn more uh, a broad base of like in the class would be a, a sequence let's say fundamentals you're looking at a takedown a mount a mount escape your back to guard an armbar so there's kind of a sequence of events that happens that's trying to tie jiu-jitsu together for the beginner so they understand the connections from one position to the other 
and uh, they're, but they're individual positions. But within those positions, as you know, there, there's probably five things that could happen. More five common things. Guys in your close guard, right? There's there's maybe depends. You know, there could be three, five, six common scenarios that might occur. So in the intermediate, now you're starting to look at individual positions. So if you're uh, in close guard and a guy does X, Y, and Z, you would have some kind of answer for it. And you're learning the basics of uh, breaking the posture, how to control, um, and then we'll offer the situational training. So we have close guard, right? We start in close guard, objective of the guy on the bottom is to get the submission, the sweep or take the back. The guy on top, his objective is to try and pass the guard. We can offer you know different constraints as well. So you could say once the guard opens, you have 10 seconds to pass or then you reset the close guard so that the focus is more on the close guard. Because one guy could just open close guard and pull spider guard immediately and the whole lesson is a waste of time because he's just uh, gone to a different position. And he's, he's not getting the time that he needs in the close guard. So depending on the scenario, we would uh, have different constraints on the situational spar. But uh, then you would do similar with side control, mount, uh, all the different positions. And it could be more specialized positions in the intermediate program, like you could introduce the lasso guard or De La Hiva and one leg X or some of these more kind of technical positions and just keep them as basic as possible or later as long as the guy knows how to get into them and maybe does one one sweep or two moves from it that's enough for him to start to play and then that situational training again gives some ideas so then as you go to the advanced level that, that's probably the hardest one to for most people, for most coaches to uh, get a right approach. Because at that point, you've, tra- you've got students like in our advanced classes, blue belt and above. You have to be blue belt and above. So you have to have a foundations of jiu-jitsu. And our blue belts have to do an exam as well that they have passed uh, all the curriculum of white belt so they they have an understanding coming in to that class so that gives us a bit more ability to what we can teach in the advanced students too so we could take an advanced move like say say a burn bolo for example see this is a hard move to teach to an advanced class because i might have some guys there that are 90 kgs 100 kgs and they're never going to burn bolo anybody, ever. Even if they learn how to do it, they're just never going to do it. <laughs> they're like, why am I even doing this? So they're fed up with it, you know. Um, and it could be other positions too. I'm just taking that as an example uh, of a technical type position. But uh, so we have to try and gauge our, our students, like what's the best things that, that we should approach it. So say, for example, it's, it is a burn bolo. We can do that for a time because the guy that never wants to do it may want to learn it from the defensive aspect as well. So he can he can go through it, figure out some details, but then at least he'll have a better understanding of the position. So when people try to do it on him, he'd be able to defend too. So explaining it to your student in that way, he'll be more bought in on learning it too, rather than, hey, man, I'm never going to learn this. I don't like it. It's I'm t- not flexible. I'm, I'm half guard or death, you know, so... And that's it. So that gives them chances 
to do it. But if we do p- pick a more broad position, like a half guard, you could like a, say, let's a knee shield position and what options we have from there. So then again, we we we'll do specific training from that position, develop out the options that we can have from. Okay, if he does this, if he goes to the left, I do this. If he goes to the right, if he does that. If he leans back, I do this. If he comes forward, I'm going to do this. If he has the grip on my collar, I'm going to do this. If he has the grip on this collar, I'm going to do that. So you're building out the knowledge of the position so that the guys know exactly where they're going um, in each moment. So you're developing all those uh, different skills. And then you can change the specific training more and more to uh, adapt you have to do that on the fly because people are going to be learning at different levels. So you might add in different rules for the, for the situational training. If you lose half guard, we reset. Um, if you get smashed in a cross face, we can reset because that will give the guy more time with the knee shield. But you could keep that in because then he might pay the price for being cross-faced uh, in his half guard. And that might teach him more but it's also taken away the time of developing the skill. So you have to balance those things out. And then you're just watching your students, are they getting it? Uh, not, try not to overload them with information as well, not giving too much uh, details on things because the brain is just not able to take in that much information. So keeping it as minimal as possible, stop, add a detail, let's go again. Rather than stop, add five details, and you're like, mm, which, well, oh, right, I can't remember which one it was. So stop, add, add a detail. Right, go again, guys. Where you go, let, get let it away for, depends on the time around, let it away again. Stop, all right, I, I notice everyone's doing this. Just check this in the next one. Right, go again. Like that, and then that's just building the skills. And then the actual full sparring uh, is minimal, like, so... They, we used to do it all the time, just like normal rounds, start standing and, you know, just go for the submission and whatever. Where now it would be more situational training and then maybe one, two rounds of full sparring. And then open mat, we would do like an hour of, you know, just normal sparring if we have once a week. So if we were, if we were sparring for an hour, maybe 15 minutes or 10 minutes might be normal sparring and the rest would be specific situational stuff. No, that's pretty good, man. See, one question I love asking is just, uh, is, do you have any advice for like future coaches and gym owners because everyone thinks they want to open a jiu-jitsu gym because, oh yeah, we'll just roll the whole time and teach jiu-jitsu every day for fun. Yeah, it'd be awesome. But, you know, it's it's not always fun in games, just strangling your friends every day. Is there anything, <laughs> any pitfalls that you'd want future people to consider and open up a gym to avoid, you know, mistakes you've made that you don't want other people to make, you know, you've learned from and stuff? Yeah. Well, I think a really important thing is that, well, you know, have some knowledge of business, you know, if you're managing in business, like you have to know how to, to deal with all that kind of stuff from accounting and marketing and um, customer service and all these kind of things so it's important to have some understanding on that side even though it's like most jiu-jitsu guys just want to train you know but that side will keep the gym alive uh, for a long time you know because it's very important and then as we touched on then the curriculum is really important for the instructor because sometimes you can 
you can be going from here to there. It's hard to think, oh, what am I going to teach tonight? You know, what's what am I going to do? So to have plans in advance, have a curriculum. So you could say, all right, you're for something might come up in, in, in your life. You can't make training tonight. Uh, some something happens. But you want to say it to somebody else, right? OK, will you teach Monday night? OK, what are we teaching? Oh, I don't know. And if you have a curriculum, you can say, right, we're doing lesson number 25. And he's up to scratch. He's oh yeah, no problem. We'll do lesson twenty-five. That's fine. And the correct the class is structured. It has the warm up, the techniques, and whatever sparring or uh, situational training or drills are involved. So that's really important from the organisational point of view. And then like things like we said already, like just having a good environment and a good culture, developing that all the time that uh, you have the good people in the gym that are looking out for each other and they're trying to help each other uh, and you know, that will end up making them better too you know so once, once the the business side of it is right the instruction side the good culture in the gym and i would say it's a good idea to to learn how to teach so that you can do courses on, on teaching skills and teaching methods and use those as well because just because you know a technique really well doesn't mean you're going to be able to teach it well uh, there's a famous coach john wooden i don't know if you ever heard of him he was one, one of the so, most successful basketball coaches ever with ucla uh, in california and he says um you haven't taught it until they've learned it uh, so we i could teach a class and I could do a, one of the best lessons I ever did. But if the guy doesn't remember it next week, what good is it? So I have to make sure that they've learned it and taken it into their long-term memory. So I think it's important to have a good understanding of how to teach and make sure the students are getting it. Now that's pretty good. Like, see, I'm doing a course right now in college. It's about like sports massage therapy and stuff. But one of the, we, we do like a a sports and fitness course and one of the things it's like teaching people how to do stuff you know how to teach like ba like basic movements like uh how to do like a bicep curl and stuff but one of the things he the teacher brings up a lot is teaching points he's like uh this this and that you know so you have to bring up what like say you're teaching an arm lock arm bar you're like okay this move is going to like hyperextend the elbow you're by having a grip on their hands and raising their hips up you know you've told them what area it's affecting where you have to hold it and what you got to use to apply the pressure just as an as an example you know like yeah teaching points are very important and stuff because yeah you know, like th this is something i i went to college i studied uh, sport and recreation we did, we did a lot of teaching and coaching um and then it's the language that you use like teaching points but also the cues so say if i if i say to the class uh you know I want you to flex your, your left quadricep, all right? Sometimes, some guys would know what I'm talking about, and then um, some would not really understand what the flex the quadricep. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> where, you know, if you just say, like, straighten your leg um, or straighten your arm, push here, there's certain language sometimes can be too technical or, you know, it's more academic and then a student doesn't understand and it's the same like we teach kids as well so you have to use very clear precise words that they can understand 
because sometimes even the words you'd say to an adult, uh, the kids w- would just be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I don't know. And they're just looking up into the sky and they're not sure really what you've said. So you have to be very clear with them and use, get vocabulary down that even that other coaches are using the same as well for like even positions, like say one guy calls this position one name and another guy calls it a different name. Like I often hear with the, the leg lock positions, like the saddle is the 411, the honey hole, has like so many names. And I, I, uh, I don't even one know. One of the ones you... I heard recently was a cross ashy. Because like, you know, ashy right. and cross ashy because your legs are like crossed over. I'm like, yeah, uh, I think I'll just call it the saddle. Fuck that shit. Yeah, oh, I could be. Honey, honey hole was a weird one. I'm like, okay, that, that just sounds perverted. So no thanks. Yeah, and it's very confusing. I, for a long time, I, I didn't know that all those were the same thing. It's, it's ridiculous. Like, it, it was like a like uh, one of the main ones is when like uh, when John Danaher's crew says everything in Japanese or old school judo terminology. So instead of calling it an armbar position, it's like Juji Katami or Eddie Bravo calling it spider web. I'm like, can we not? It's a fucking armbar. It's a fucking <laughs> armbar. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was getting sick of well, that. Shit. I think uh, like. On that, on that point, like what Danaher's done within his guys, within his team, they have this common language that they use. And I think that's excellent to have within your team. That you all call the same, that you all know the techniques by the same name. And all the coaches know them by the same name. And then it kind of confuses the, you know, if you're at tournaments and stuff like that, you, you're calling it a different name. The other guys don't know what you're talking about. Like I'm sure guys at a, the Danaher guys are at the sideline. They're talking about Juji uh, Katami. <laughs> guys are like, "What are you on about here?" Yeah, it's, it's like so, that's you know, that's one example. But like, uh, what's it? Um, Juji Katami is like, uh, what's it? I, I think a lot of people know what Juji Katami is for, like example, because like judo guys, because that's what they call it. The same way, but it seems like just the next like wordy. Like, do you know what they call Ikimura in like judo and stuff? Like Yaku Ude Garami. I'm like. That's just three words when you could just use one. <laughs> just, yeah. Just use one for fuck. Not to mention, like, I found out recently, quick aside, because my boy Sean, Shawnee Judo Jits, shout out, told me that, like, the fucking Kimura is illegal in Judo, even though it's named after a legendary Judoka. So I'm like, what the fuck? That's, <laughs> that's really stupid. Yeah. Like, you're, not, you're not allowed to do it a Kimura in Judo competitions. That's, that's ridiculous, in my opinion. <clears throat> So, Ryan, we've reached a segment of the podcast I like to call a round of specifics. Just a bunch of random questions, some about jiu-jitsu, some about okay. jiu-jitsu. So, do you want to do a round of specifics, Ryan? Let's go for it. Man, one time someone said no, and I was very confused. I didn't know how to salvage it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What would you say is your all-time favorite gi in your collection? All-time favorite gi? Um, I do have... I have a... A Tama gi, first gi I ever got, and I got it back in 2005 or something like that, and I had to get it from Brazil at the time, but I had that gi for a long time, and I competed a lot in it, had a nice little Irish flag on the side, and now I have it framed in the IT Sligo after I won the European Championship, so it's there for all to see, so that was... Probably the best one I ever had, so <laughs> there are memories to it as well. Like, 
Well, man, how do you go about framing geese? Like, how do you, who do you ask? Like, do you just get a really big frame that has a bit of, and just flatten the gee out? Really? Uh, I don't know, like, because I was a student there at the time and they, they had, uh, I had sports scholarship there and they, they, I'd won the, the Europeans. And when I came back, they were like, oh, this is great. And uh, we want to put up some kind of a plaque or something like that. And he says, what about your gee? Would you do that? I said, yeah, yeah. So I just gave it to them and they did it. So I don't know how it, how it was done, but it, it came out great. It was like, uh, did you give them a belt as well, or just the gi? Uh, no, just the gi. And they have it framed in the sports hall on the on the entrance. My man. That's, for, that's fucking cool, man. Like, see, I don't know, like, uh, one question I'm always curious about, just like a sidebar. Do you still have, like, your original white belt and shit? Like, do you still have the first one you have? No. Ah, dude. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm fucking crazy. I still have it there in the drawer. Fucking, and I'm a bit uh, crazy. Like I did this after the fact, after I got promoted. I wrote all the fucking dates I got promoted yeah. shit on them because I'm a bit crazy. For I actually, I wish I did have it. You know, I, I wish I did. But in the in the early days of jujitsu, I was very unsentimental about the, these things. Was, we were just kind of training. We didn't know where it was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think like, I'd be still at it all these years later. You know, like, I didn't know what was happening. It's just, it's just a belt. <laughs> but now I look back and I wish I did have the those belts. Ah, uh, you know, I uh, sure, dude. You get, I don't know, get a ceremonial one or something. Oh yeah, this, this is the white belt I use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, man, do you speak uh, any other languages? No. You don't even, not even like a uh, little bit of uh, Portuguese just to deal with uh, all oh, your compadres. A couple of words. I have a couple of words of Portuguese, but nothing too much. Just to, <laughs> well, what's the just to get, get you out of bed or so. <laughs> or like uh, tap. It's happened Portuguese since uh, Lucas Leprinko. No, I just scream like you know, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's kind of weird because like jiu-jitsu, like a lot of people made this analogy. Like jiu-jitsu is like a universal language. Like even if you don't speak the same language, you can roll together and you can have good crack. You know, you can get a good understanding of each other. Like say if someone you roll with is using like dirty moves, like say you're a white belt and they're wrist locking you, like, you should be wrist locking white belts. Don't be a cunt. And like uh, or they're doing fucking he looks in the key you're you can even without even being able to speak the same language you know that person's an asshole for example yeah <laughs> i i don't know <laughs> i don't know i think whatever about like wrist lock people but he looks in the key you're a massive prick in my opinion <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> you know, dude, play fucking, play it by the rules you know that's yeah. fucking illegal bro yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, what would you say was your favorite tv show when you were growing up um, let me see. I was a big fan of the Teenage Mutant Turtles. Which one is your favourite? Which one of them was your favourite? Uh, Raphael, maybe. Uh, Michelangelo was pretty cool, you know. But... He's a bit... It, it, you know, it's crazy. So, like, the nunchucks are fucking complicated because you have to be aware of, like, two sticks connected by chains. You're swinging two of them at one time. you got to have a lot of fucking... Mental, mental, mental know-how of being aware of where each of them are. That's like the most complicated weapon that they could use, but they gave it to the, the dumbest member of the fucking Ninja Turtles. I'm like, that's stupid. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's retarded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just a kid's show, and I'm looking too much into it, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> that's just me. Yeah. Uh, more, into, more into myself, because I like swords, and he's cool, and blue, so... Yeah, he's a very sensible guy as well, you know, Leonardo. That's it. Uh, 
is there any movie in your opinion is underrated doesn't get the respect it deserves like you, you're the only person that likes this whenever you say to someone I like this movie you're like damn you're stupid um there's a great there's a, I like uh, sometimes the, you know the Japanese movies or the subtitles Japanese movies and there was one I seen there uh 13 assassins and it, it's about this uh this lord in, in Japan is, is uh he's kind of brutal and he's mutilating people and he's doing horrible things to the the peasants so these samurais are get together and they say, right, we're going to take him out. We're going to sort him out. But he has a big army and all this. So they kind of lure him to this village and they kind of set the village up. It's kind of like the village of death. So it's all fenced off and they lure the army in there. And there's only 13 of them versus a couple of hundred. And uh, it's just like the, for an hour solid of just called berserk sword fighting. And I think it's a fantastic film. <laughs> But those Japanese films, I love them. Even the old ones, the Seven Samurai. And... That's a good one. Or Yojimbo. Yeah, yeah. That's a very weird name, Yojimbo. It's like, do you ever see The Simpsons, your man Jimbo, and it's like, yo, Jimbo. Yeah, do you remember the... I don't know if you remember the rabbit from uh, Teenage Mutant Turtles. There was a samurai rabbit, and he was called Yojimbo. <laughs> Shit, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, quick, <laughs> quick aside. Did you ever see the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? Oh yeah, yeah. Uncle Phil voiced Shredder in the old Ninja Turtle cartoon. Ah. Yeah. Like, listen, listen, and you 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 hear Uncle Phil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's like, oh, "I want to conquer Earth," you'll hear it. <laughs> it's a t terrible impression, but man. What was that? Your first video game console? What was your favorite game in it? Uh, first one was the Commodore sixty four. That's going back now. Fucking hell, bro. That's, that's fucking... That's retro shit, bro. Oh, yeah, that's seriously old. And you had to load the games with a tape deck. Fucking hell. And had I talked to, to like I 90 just... minutes or something. Italia 90 was the game. That was the best game on it. Well, was it a racing game? Uh, so <laughs> it was World Cup soccer Italia 90. Like. Uh, I was thinking like... Uh, no, I just thought like Italian fucking... Like, I thought it was Formula One or something. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that was that was the first one. I haven't had one in twenty years though, so I don't know what they're like now. So you you don't play UFC four? What the hell? No, I haven't had uh, PlayStation two was the last one I had, and it was uh, Metal Gear Solid or something like that was the the game. Oh, dude, fucking love Metal Gear, love those games. And that's that's I haven't had a console since then. Oh, you're too busy fucking winning Europeans like a normal person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, man, like, uh, what would you say is your most embarrassing injury? Would it be a jiu-jitsu injury, a non-jiu-jitsu injury? Just the way you got injured was just so fucking ridiculous and or stupid. Mm. Uh, there's, there's plenty. Uh, one time I lost one of my front teeth in my brother's forehead while sparring. How? Uh, he kind of, he. I'm not sure exactly what happened. Uh, I kind of got bumped forward while passing the guard, and I landed head first into his head. But my mouth kind of landed on his forehead, and my front tooth uh, it broke in his forehead, like in half. So there was a chip of my tooth stuck on his head. <laughs> how 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 good were the insults after that? How how good was the? 
caliber of insult people making fun of you for that. Uh, it was just like, you, what could you say? You know, it was just one of those crazy situations. Like, <laughs> and uh, I hope it wasn't in uh, the fucking holiday season because and you'd never hear the end of "All I Want for Christmas Is My Two Front Teeth." <laughs> <laughs> the two of them, not just one, two or one and a half. <laughs> <in the> case. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm such an asshole. I love making fun of people for that shit. Man, what would you say? Do you have any uh, nicknames in the gym? Uh, no. Like, of the guys or me? Uh, like, do, 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 do they have any nicknames for you? Uh, not that I know of. <laughs> oh, okay, anyone who trains at Ryan at Atlantic Sligo, if he even... I, I promise I won't say nothing. If you have a nickname for him, just send it my way. I swear I won't tell him immediately afterwards, straight away. I swear. It's honestly... <laughs> Uh, man, what would you say is your favorite song to roll to? Oh, I don't know. I, I I can tell you that I really don't like to roll with the uh, kind of hardcore heavy metal. I kind of like uh, more easy going, like Bob Marley or something like that is probably better, or just kind of easy going rock music, that kind of stuff. I don't like the kind of getting pumped up music. No, I'm big into I prefer like more relaxed. Yeah, like instrumental rap shit, like from um, what's it? Sorry. from like MF Doom. He has like good instrumental shit. It does like low key stuff. So like you can sort of like flow and like sort of move to it instead of just trying to mush on each other. Yeah, yeah. That's the sort of thing I meant. I mean, so. And uh, if you could time travel to any historical period, where would you go and why? Um, probably the Stone Age, maybe. It's just simpler times, you know. Why, why, like, do you want to grapple with a caveman or something? Or a... Oh, well, you know, it was simpler times. Like, the dating scene was very simple as well. Like, you know, you just banged a woman over the head with a club and job done. Like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of the fucking the dating scene, have you ever been on a really terrible date? Uh, yeah. Ooh, let's hear it, bro. Come on. Well, I, I went on a date once with a woman who thought she was a superhero. She thought she was a superhero. Like what? She thought she was Wonder Woman or something? You're like, wait a minute. That date we went on the Halloween, that was a normal day for her. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, she thought, she, I don't know. I, it was very confusing. She was she was wearing one of those kind of like jackets, you know, that with a high collar on it and acting very suspicious. So I, I didn't let it go on too far after that, you know. So what, at like a moment's notice, she jumped into a phone booth to throw on her superhero costume. That was she amazing. said something like she didn't want me to blow her cover. <laughs> I don't know, was she just nervous trying to make some conversation or something like that? But Maybe, uh, I've, I've, didn't I've, come I've, across well anyway. I have an idea. Maybe she, she was wearing a big coat to sort of hide herself because her ex-boyfriend was on a date in the same place just across the bar. Do you know what that could have been? <laughs> She, I don't know. Her, her other two boyfriends were. She's like, I don't know. I don't want them to know I'm spying on them. Yeah. She had another guy lined up for half an hour later. Or something. Oh, <laughs> All right. Uh, we got a bit of a moral conundrum here if you're up for it. So, <clears throat> would you rather cure cancer or solve world hunger? <laughs> I go with the hunger. Uh, and who knows? Like I always say this when people choose the hunger, maybe one of the hungry kids grows up to cure cancer so you get a two for one deal. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. 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 The potential's there. Or also, okay, 
Okay, this is a bit of a, in your professional opinion, in your years and years of knowledge and shit, could you pull off a handlebar mustache? I probably not. I'm I'm struggling with the beard as it is. <laughs> no man, you've you've got a pretty good fucking beard going. It's really good there. I, what about like um, the general Lee or the general Custer, whatever you want to call it? Where you just shave like uh, your chin down to here, and you just have the beard growing bushy, and you have like nothing on your chin. Did you ever see one of them? Yeah, I, I'm open to experimenting with it maybe someday. <laughs> when I when I'm maybe sixty or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, the best I can manage is a shitty goatee, and since I shaved my head there, I look like a fucking discount Heisenberg. <laughs> And it's not even like it's just with a one. It's not even like skin tight. So I'm like, ah, uh, whatever. I'm not shaving it with a zero ever because it's fucking cold. No thanks. And I don't want to look like a skinhead. But see, uh, what we're we reached the last question, Ryan. Are you ready for the last question? Let's do it. What would you say is your jitsu spirit animal if you have one? Like the way you roll, you consider it to be like you act like and embody this one sort of spirit animal or something. <laughs> Um, let me see. It could be the wolf, or it could be the eagle. Depends. So you just fly around, swoop down, gouge people's eyes out, and then fly away. Um, yeah. Well, you know, in jujitsu, like you have to have vision, see what the person is going to do next. So the eagle is well known for uh, for vision and being able to see what's what's ahead. So you have to be able to read the game. That's where the eagle comes in. But with the wolf, the strength of the wolf comes from the strength of the pack. So you have to have a good team around you. Yeah, so guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. It was a really good one. Had a strange cut out there at the end. Really sorry about that. Uh, you know, shit happens. But see, uh, guys, first and foremost, uh, you might have noticed a dip in audio quality there in that episode. See, one of the cables that I connect to my computer to put the headphone jack and the microphone into got uh well it got broken so i had to get a new one and i think the new one was a bit uh for lack of better word shit so look just if you, if you just bear with us for a few episodes we'll be able to sort it out the audio quality back to normal and you know we'll all sort it out so as always if you like the episode follow me at human jitsu sean at human at shawnee judo jits con at con gracie and uh the podcast page at human jitsu podcast and if you have a suggestion for an episode, the topic episodes we do with the co-hosts, be sure to shoot them at us at any of any one of those profiles. We love suggestions. If you have also, if you have a suggestion for anyone you want to see on the podcast, whether it be in the Irish Jiu-Jitsu scene, UK, or anywhere really, we just love talking to anyone. Shoot us a, a suggestion. We'd love to hear it. So thanks for listening and adios.